You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, June 22nd, 2016, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. And Jay Novella. Hey, guys. We are recording a little bit early this week because I'm going to be out of town uh, next week. And Evan is still in Italy, still touring. Oh, yeah. It's funny. He sent us a picture yesterday. He was in, uh, I think it's Florence, right, where there's a Piazza de Santa Maria Novella. That's Florence. Uh, <laughs> love it. Love it. Uh, yeah. Yep. So, <laughs> like, look, it's all of you guys in one day. Florence is an unbelievably beautiful city. Oh, my God. Did I love being there? Yeah, it's beautiful. And the uh, you know when you say Florence you know it's like there it is the region of Florence right so the the uh, country surrounding the city I was talking to my wife about this it looks like what I I, I would classify it as it's heaven mm-hmm. it's it's all hand manicured like it's just unbelievable how much work people throughout however many hundreds of years are, you know were were spending planting all things it's like everything is beautiful by design it, it's unreal you have to go. Um, yeah, they have skeptical conferences in Italy, but they're in Italian. I'd still go. I would <laughs> go just sit there and smile the whole time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, uh, Kara, you're going to start us off this week with what's the word? Indeed. And the word this week is alluvium. That sounds like a cool metal. No, isn't it, isn't it something about uh, like uh, drain, drained water and sediment? And- yeah, yeah, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yep. How do you know that, Bob? Uh, so alluvium is clay or silt or sand or gravel or other similar material that's deposited by running water, uh, usually left by flowing streams in a river valley or a delta. And generally speaking, alluvium is, um, contributes to very fertile soil. But alluvium as a term gets really complicated when you start comparing it to terms like colluvium or fluvial settlements because they're closely related and oftentimes they actually refer to the same thing. I found a great blog post online um, at geographer-miller.com comparing colluvium versus alluvium. And there's even an update at the top that says, because of the tremendous response to this blog post, we've initiated a survey to better understand how different people around the world are defining these terms. <laughs> because apparently, depending on where you live, colluvium could be more upstream, alluvium could be more downstream, one of them may be drier, one of them may be wetter. And these geological terms are not always as, I don't know, discreet as you like to think. But generally speaking, both of those terms do refer to settlements that are at the bases of hill slopes. You may have heard the word scree or talus. That's almost the same thing, but the rock fragments are usually a little bit bigger. And the etymology. So this is, it, you know, literally translates to matter deposited by flowing water. It was from medieval Latin in the 1660s from alluvius and alluere, meaning wash against, and ad, meaning to or against, mixed with luere, meaning to wash. That makes sense. Luere, that kind of makes sense. Or laver, you know, like lavadora in Spanish, like a washing machine. Yeah. Yeah. And please do not... Confuse this with effluvium, which is an unpleasant or harmful odor, secretion, or discharge. (laughs) Kara, did you come across the fact that a lot of alluvia contains uh, mineral deposits like gold, platinum, 
sometimes oh, gemstones. That's interesting. In fact, uh, the majority of the world's supply of tin ore, cassiterite, comes from alluvium. Oh, fascinating. And maybe that kind of harkens back to the early days of panning for gold, where you would actually be going through the silt with your little screen or your little sieve to find the gold uh, flakes. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah, exactly. Very cool. And it also contains a a lot of organic matter, which is why, again, it's very, leads to very Very fertile fertile. soil. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you. Uh, First news item this week, uh, I blogged about this today on Science Based Medicine the MEND protocol for Alzheimer's disease. But let's back up a bit. Have you guys ever heard of functional medicine? Uh, I think I've heard the term, but what does it mean? Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of terms that get thrown around that, in my opinion, essentially are just excuses for using crappy science in medicine. That's Mm -hmm. what it comes down to. Whether it's complementary, alternative, integrative, and now functional medicine, personalized medicine. Although personalized is a legitimate concept, it's just being used – and overhyped, again, just to do more pseudoscience in medicine. It always comes down to we're just going to use crappy science or no science or pseudoscience and we'll just call it something nice and give it a you know a flowery sort of philosophy around it. So the idea of functional medicine is that you're, you're using an intervention which is based upon how the body functions. Like you – it focuses a lot on nutritional supplements – uh, or lifestyle changes that address specific functional attributes of the individual patient. What? Um, as if medicine doesn't focus on function? Yeah, I know. It's silly. But <laughs> so again, weird. it's all just a, an elaborate hand-waving excuse to use crappy science. So keep that in mind when we talk about the, this new protocol. And, the, and we're talking about this because there, they, there was just a study published, which again is so emblematic. The protocol, again, it's not a single treatment. It's a complex set of treatments determined by a computer algorithm. Uh, it's a protocol, right? And it's a bunch of different interventions that is consistent with this notion of functional medicine. Like, for example, the website that the company that owns it, Muses Labs, they um, describe their protocol. So listen to this. The Analysis algorithm recommends both pharmacological and non-pharmacological components. For example, if synaptic reconstruction and maintenance is needed, then multiple biological mechanisms may require normalization, enhancement, or administration. That's gobbledygook, right? That's, yeah, but it sounds very sound. That is technobabble. That is t- – example – here's some more. Examples of these underlying biological mechanisms include periodically activating autophagy, blocking prionic tau amplification, increasing beta amyloid clearance, inhibiting beta amyloid ol- oligomerization, minimizing inflammation, normalizing neurotrophic factors, and it goes on. It's like they're, it's, they're just pulling out stuff from basic science research, you know. And then somebody looks it up and they go, oh, I don't want, you know, plaques and tangles. That's Alzheimer's. I need to do this. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, I want to normalize my neurotrophic factors. So it's, you know, again, you could could make this up in an hour if you just zip through, like pick a disease, you know, do a PubMed search, just pull random terms out of the abstracts and just say that you're going to do all this stuff, right? Of course, each one of these things that they're mentioning it, mentioning it would require multiple, multiple studies from basic science to translational science to clinical science, uh, showing that there was some net biological beneficial effect from doing whatever it is they're doing, right? But they're just skipping all of that science and just going from 
these markers to saying, oh, we're going to renormalize your neurotrophic factors and in- inhibit beta amyloid oligomerization. Really? You figured out how to do that? You figured out how to increase beta amyloid clearance? Good for you. You know, how did you do that? How did you bypass the 20 years of research that would have taken to do each (laughs) one of these individual things? Steve, who are they talking to when they say those types of things? Because you might get an idea of what they're saying. I would imagine that maybe 5% of our audience kind of understands what the hell they're saying. Like, it certainly doesn't mean anything to me. But it sounds science-y, right? No, it these are all legit. These, so this thing is, so Alzheimer's disease, it's a great one to pick, right? Because we don't have a treatment for it. There's symptomatic treatment, but there's no disease-modifying treatment. We can't slow it down or stop it or reverse it. Uh, also, there's tons and tons of basic science research looking at Alzheimer's disease. It's a neurodegenerative disease where the brain cells basically start to die, and they die over years, and you just slowly lose your cognitive faculties, your memory tends to go early, but you lose everything eventually. It's a horrible disease. If you look at the basic science research, uh, just about every aspect of cell function, of brain function that you look at at the cellular level is abnormal. You know, yeah, there's inflammation and there's impaired axonal transport and there's oxidative stress and there is toxic stress from from glutamate and there is proteins misfolding like in mad cow disease. All these things are happening. In fact, there's, we have too many clues. Like everything is abnormal. The problem is when it's like something is going wrong and there's all of these downstream effects and then everything is going wrong. There's a buildup of, of proteins, you know, the tau proteins and the amyloid, et cetera. So the problem is we have no idea what's cause and effect. Is the, is the inflammation just cleaning up the dead cells or is it actually killing the cells? You don't know, right? Is the, is the abnormally folded protein driving the disease or is that just a byproduct of the disease? It's this, once the cells start to die, then everything seems to misbehave. You know what I mean? Mm. We're at that stage where we know a ton of stuff, but we can't put it all together. We don't know what's driving the disease, why person A gets Alzheimer's disease and person B doesn't. And again, there may be more than one thing going on here. It may be heterogeneous, right? So there may be people who have different reasons why they ultimately develop it to make it even more complicated. So for that reason, you could pick out all of these things and say, oh, I'm going to you know, normalize all of these things that are abnormal in Alzheimer's disease. But we have no idea what that means. You know, you're, you're, you're just rearranging the, you know, as they say, rearranging the furniture on the deck of the Titanic. You have no idea if it's <laughs> actually doing anything. <laughs> That, that's why it's been such a tricky disease. And, and it's been, you know, decades of research and so many studies and we still don't know how to treat it. We still don't know what's causing it. Uh, cause it's just really, really complex. But they just take all of that basic science and say, we're just going to fix all these things with some magical mystery protocol that they don't describe because it's, you know, proprietary, right? So they mm. published a study. It's really a case series of 10 patients. Um, so it's not controlled. It's not blinded. Uh, it's just 10 cases. They don't really um, provide you the kind of information you would need to have to really evaluate what's going on. You know, they say the person had documented Alzheimer's disease, but they don't really give you the information you would need to know that. They say that they they improved, you know, like they're, they had subjective cognitive improvement. Okay. And, you know, they sometimes they do provide numbers like their mini mental status exam. But it's really, really problematic. You know, obviously it's not blinded right there. It's not randomized. I have no idea if these 10 patients were cherry picked out of hundreds. You know what I mean? Who mm-hmm. knows? 
you, you don't know that these people really had Alzheimer's disease. One thing is, I, I dinged them for this. They were calling these patients Alzheimer's disease throughout the paper. In fact, wow. the name of the paper is Reversal of Cognitive Decline in Alzheimer's Disease. I thought you could only diagnose that on autopsy. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> in fact, these people have Alzheimer's type dementia, which means that they meet the clinical criteria, but we don't have a pathological diagnosis. They're just assuming that the Alzheimer's type dementia is Alzheimer's disease. But we don't know that. They may have something self-limiting. Who knows? Yeah. So and again, if you're if, if they're cherry picking cases, yeah, sure, you can you can find cases where patients you know stop progressing or do better. And of course, you know if you the patients doing better on follow up exams like neuropsychological testing, well, there's a practice effect to that. If you give a patient the test twice, they're always going to do better the second time. Um, often in, in clinical trials, we'll have patients do the test like three times and plateau, and then that's their baseline, and then we compare. Uh, you know, but if you just give it to them first time and second time, they're gonna they may be better just because of the practice effect. So it was really, in my opinion, pretty sloppy protocol. Not the kind of thing where you could make. It's not extraordinary evidence, and they're making extraordinary claims, and they're really hiding all the important data that you would really need to have. So that's functional medicine in a nutshell. It's pseudoscientific, technobabble, gobbledygook, you know, kind of ripped from basic science studies without really doing the quality kind of clinical research that you would need to do in order to know if it actually works. And they're doing it for like 30 things at once, you know. So it's, it's, it's at the end of the day, it just amounts to utter nonsense, which is very unlikely to pan out. They're just, you know, they're, as I say, they're doing it wrong. You know, they're just not doing the science that is necessary to really know if any one of these interventions works. It's also the other thing is you're mixing 30 things together. How do you know what's working and what's not working? You know? Yeah. How do you do science with 13 different variables or 30 yeah. different variables in the same population? Right. But Steve, is it is this a scam or is it just misguided people? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I think it's probably a little bit of both is always the answer in that, you know, there's a company making money off of this. They're packaging it as a very sexy, sciencey kind of treatment. You know, they're doing the kind of research that it can sound impressive, but somebody who knows what they're talking about looks at it. They're not going to be that impressed by it. It's designed to be false positive. You know what I mean? The kind of research that's going to be positive, guaranteed. Um, it's not really testing whether or not it works. So it certainly is has a lot of red flags for a scam. That doesn't mean necessarily that everyone involved is consciously perpetrating a scam. I do think so there's yeah, there's certainly different philosophies in medicine. Uh right now I think the dominant philosophy in terms of the relationship between science and practice is evidence-based medicine, which is fine as far as it goes, but as I've said many times before on the show, it needs some tweaks and you know those tweaks are science-based medicine. Um but then at this and that's pretty much I think 95% of people in medicine, right? Are somewhere on the EBM to SBM spectrum. Uh, but then you have, you know, the people who are proponents of functional medicine or integrative medicine or alternative medicine or whatever. And they're basically just trying to, to change the rules of science to lower uh, the threshold of evidence and to lower the standard of care. That's all, that's really their goal. That's what they are doing. And they sort of package it in different ways. But it's still just bad science when you get right down to it. And this is a perfect example of that. 
All right. Well, let's move on to another topic. This is a Jay. This is a really a controversial topic. I think there's going to probably be some controversy even among our own listeners. But tell us about this recent study looking at the cost of carbon. Yeah, I I took this as speculative. Of course, I mean this isn't exact in any way. It's more of just trying to take a look at the cost and the future costs of of not dealing with carbon emissions and also just not. Not having those people or companies who are truly responsible pay for the carbon emissions. And as you all know, you know, you've heard of the carbon tax and all that, but we're getting into some of the details now and the cost estimates of, of what the damage is. So it's, you know, if you think about it, it's an interesting idea when we use fuels. You're in your car, uh, burning oil for your house. You know, they release carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases and that they'll, in the, they'll, in the long run, the use of those fuels, like every time you drive to work and you're using a fuel, that it it has a cost. Now, you can look at that cost in different ways, but I'm I'm thinking more now from from the things I've been reading that there's a cost to future generations is more of what I'm getting at. But it really is a, a cost that's spread out to the entire world, of course, because you, you know it's not just you, but you're 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 in essence causing society money when they get these fuels and when we use the fuels. Now, the, right now, there's roughly about two-thirds of the, the companies globally or individuals who should be paying for cleanup of their carbon emissions aren't, and that's a big problem. Now, like I said, future generations, you know, billions of people will be the ones who end up paying for this, and it's not just money that they're going to pay for, but it could it be dramatic quality of life issues as well. And to think that thousands of today's companies that are pumping, you know, tons of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, they're profiting off of future generations. And and again, like it could be money, it could be quality of life or both. The International Monetary Fund, this organization issued a report that said that 5.2 trillion US dollars a year are lost due to not making companies pay for the damage that they're doing to the environment and and other aspects of society, which I'll get into. So, you know, governments are Catching on slowly, you know, and some faster than others, uh, they're starting to um, make, you know, put taxes in place and put regulations in place. These companies that rely on fuel, you know, like oil companies or coal companies, they make their profits off of selling these fuels are going to be a, a part of what they, well, is now being called the carbon bubble. It's a cool idea. It's like the internet bubble. You, you, everyone may have heard about the internet bubble and when all of those technology companies went belly up in a short amount of time because the whole thing just evaporated and all the potentials didn't happen. It's going to pop. This carbon bubble is going to pop and businesses all over the world are suddenly going to be dealing with huge price of or costs of doing business increases because, again, governments – very quickly as things get worse and worse may, might start to try to make change happen and, and all of a sudden levy all these taxes. And the companies today that are, that could be making billions or trillions of dollars all of a sudden might not be making any money because of the cost of um, what the carbon tax, the quote unquote carbon taxes would be to them. So experts are now trying to figure out what that cost is to the businesses. And Chris Hope and his colleagues at the University of Cambridge Judge Business School have tried to calculate these costs and what they would be for the top 20 fossil fuel companies. These companies are the ones who are most vulnerable to the carbon tax. And straight out, guys, the outlook is really bad. It's really bad. Um, Hope said that um, the economic health and environmental costs, so it's economic health and environmental costs 
of properly dealing with a ton of carbon dioxide was quantified. So what does it cost to get rid of the damage done by one ton of carbon dioxide? Hmm. Then he applied that to each of the of these 20 companies and multiplied it by their carbon output over a three-year period, 2008 to 2012, I believe. And he just wanted to see, okay, so what's it, what would it cost these companies to, to properly deal with what, what damage they're doing? And in short, all 20 companies would end up owing more to fix the damage than they would gain after the, the profits after taxes. And of those companies, of those companies, the ones that dealt solely with coal would on average owe $9 to every dollar of positive cash flow. So that's serious business right there. And the researchers wow. noted, like I said, it's unlikely that all these companies will ever have to pay. And it's also, you know, this isn't, a, you know, exact what they're saying. It's more of just an indicator like, okay, so here's an estimate of the potential future risk of these companies as businesses, as, you know, for-profit businesses. You know, economists call that a negative externality. So basically, or you're shifting the cost of doing business onto somebody else or onto society. Mm. Or onto the, onto, onto the future generations, which- Well, this- even onto current, onto current generations. There's a healthcare cost now. Yeah. People are, you know, are, we talked about that previously on the show, the estimated cost, increased cost of healthcare of just pollution, of fossil fuel burning based pollution is, you know, in the billions. Yeah, look at uh, China. That's a negative externality. So it, it is absolutely a subsidy to the business to not require them to pay that. It's as if you allowed a company to just dump their toxic waste somewhere else and society pays to clean it up. You know, that's absolutely a subsidy. You're not making them pay for the, the negative externality that is comes with doing business. But, of, you know, of course, it, that doesn't necessarily translate into we should tax uh, fossil fuel companies the actual cost of the carbon they're releasing into the atmosphere because it might not be a good idea to completely pull the carpet out from under our energy infrastructure you know overnight of course yeah what we want to do is just balance the sheet a little bit so that renewable energy is more cost effective because we're actually accounting for some of the external costs of burning fossil fuel. Fossil fuel, in other words, is artificially cheap because we're not making them pay for the cost of dumping pollution and carbon into the atmosphere. And and that that artificial cheapness is actually inhibiting other forms of energy, renewable energy, et cetera. Other forms of energy would be, by comparison, much more cost-effective if you actually accounted for the real-world cost of burning fossil fuels. As you and I have previously discussed, solar panels have turned the corner, and they're at the point now where in some cases they are creating electricity in a less expensively than burning fuel. Depending on the market, yeah. Some markets, yeah. it's actually solar is cost-effective. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So in another decade, with the technology increases that we're seeing, if you just continue to follow that line of that steady increase of sol- you know, collecting solar energy, we're definitely going to be uh, fossil fuel. So I would say, you know, do you know, in extension of what you're saying, yeah, take let's tax these companies. Don't tax them into oblivion. Tax them just enough so we could subsidize other companies and then make this shift over the next twenty years. World, hello, right? Yeah. I mean, why wouldn't yeah, it, you do this? It's happening anyway. But the question is, is it going to happen fast enough? Yeah, we can make it happen right. faster by just tweaking the market. You know, we're just regulating the market, and again, I think it's totally justified. So otherwise, your position has to be that companies are not responsible for the waste 
that they produce, even if it has demonstrable cost to society as a whole. That, that I don't think that's a defensible position. So to play devil's advocate, because you guys know me and you know I don't actually think this way, is there, do you think, a legitimate argument for the fact that that cost should be passed on to the consumer somehow? Maybe not the way that it's being shifted now where it's passed on to society as a whole, but built into the price of, you know, some of these commodities, like the same way that when I used to go to the shop to get my car worked on and I got new tires, there would be a tire disposal fee tacked onto my bill. Or if you have to have a battery swap, there's a fee for disposing of your battery. And in your head, you might think, well, why isn't the battery company paying to dispose of the batteries that they created? But they're then passing that cost onto me as the consumer. Do you think that there's an argument to be made that the consumer themselves, because they want to use the fossil fuels, that they have a, a re- responsibility to take on that cost themselves? Well, they will take on that cost. The companies will transfer that cost to the consumer, mm-hmm. right? You're going to be paying $6 a gallon for gas or whatever, if, if depending on how much if we the decide taxes to go tax through, it. Yeah. So that's why this is kind of a societal question. And there's a lot of value judgments that need to be made here. And we're not trying to impose any kind of particular value judgment. It's more that we have to think about all of the effects and consequences of all these actual decisions. They shouldn't be made by default because nobody's thinking about it. And they certainly shouldn't be made by companies who are going to make decisions that are entirely in their own self-interest, mm-hmm. even when it may not be in the interest of society as a whole. And there's lots of things to think about. Like this will raise the cost of everything. You know, We certainly don't want to tank the economy or, or you know, dramatically reduce our our quality of life or you know whatever but at the same time we have to think very seriously about the fact that we are having an artificially inflated quality of life borrowing against our children and grandchildren right because we are shifting costs to them if we're benefiting from cheap gas and leaving the cost of cleanup to future generations that's not fair either we're just we're living high off the hog on their back um so we have to think about justice i think generationally uh, as well. And also there's the idea that, you know, developed countries have already sort of used up our carbon budget and now we're depriving that of third world countries. That's not fair either. There's a lot of nuances to this. And I think we just need to decide what the best pathway forward is that will have the minimal impact on e- the economy, minimal impact on society, serve some kind of reasonable balance of justice, but also avoids you know, minimizes the negative outcomes to immediately to healthcare and also long term to the environment. And, you know, we have to balance all of those things. That requires leadership at the national and international level. And unfortunately, that's really hard, you know, to get the kind of leadership that we really need. Because it's a psychological shift, really, more than anything. It requires that as a society, we start thinking more about the implications of the things we do. We're a very, very short term mm-hmm. society. You know, we are the society of credit. Like yeah. it's built into the way that we view the world is I want it now. I'll figure out how to deal with it later. And so that's a big hurdle to get to get past to start really planning for the future in that yeah. kind of a way. I know. But Kara, we're at the point now there's so much information we can't ignore it anymore. This is this isn't really a, a decision that needs to be made. It's just something to do at this point. It's a regulation. Uh, yeah, it's going to require regulation. It's not something that, you know, the companies are going to step up and decide to do on their own. 
Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show for a new sponsor this week, a semi-new sponsor, Audible.com. Guys, do you know how long I've been listening to Audible? Four foot one. Three years. I Four foot one, yes. Uh, I've been listening since the mid to late 90s. Wow. 90s. Fantastic website. They have so such an amazing selection of audiobooks and even not just audiobooks. They've got things like famous speeches and thousands upon thousands of, of books in any genre, amazing narrators. It's a wonderful site. You could you could sign up and get on a plan. You can get a you get a free download every every month with with a membership fee. It's just an incredible site. I've been using it for quite some time, and I heartily recommend it. Guys, I want to recommend that if you have not listened to the Game of Thrones books, yeah, I know, but listen. The, the books are fantastic, but the absolute best way to digest them is to listen to Roy Dotrice narrate the Game of Thrones book books. It's the best listening experience of your life, right, Bob? Oh, he is unparalleled, number one. I think one of the best things about Audible is that the app is really easy. You know, you can f- use chapter navigation. You can even change the speed of the narration to suit your preferences. And you've got access to, as Bob said, all these different books, but audio shows, short stories, ad-free podcasts, news, even comedy. And you can access all of that content anytime, anywhere, right from your smartphone or your tablet. So you can start a 30-day trial and download your first audiobook for free. Go to audible.com slash skeptics. That's audible.com slash skeptics for a free 30-day trial and free audiobook. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. Uh, Bob, tell us about China's new supercomputer. So, yeah, so China's new supercomputer, Sunway Taiyu Light, is now officially the fastest supercomputer in the world. This is the first 100 petaflop class supercomputer and perhaps the best evidence yet of the end of the United States supercomputer dominance. Now, this was developed by China's National Research Center of Parallel Computer Engineering and Technology. And it was ranked by the top500.org, which tests and ranks supercomputers twice a year and has been doing it for years. So let's get to the nitty-gritty of Sunway Taiyu Lite. This supercomputer is nearly 2 million times faster than a standard laptop. Yeah, 2 million times. So with a peak performance of, uh, I've, I've heard two, two figures on this, 125, but more common was 93 petaflops per second. That's 93 quadrillion calculations per second. That is a boatload. So you remember the progression, million, billion, trillion, quadrillion. So it's way up there. That's 10 to the 15. Or another way to look at it is 93 million billion calculations per second. Now that's nearly three times the performance of its closest competitor. And that's Tiane2, which is another Chinese supercomputer, which has been number one for about three years now. So where's the United States in all this? Uh, the, the most powerful United States machine, ranked third overall, is Titan, and that has 17.9 petaflops, which is only about a fifth as fast. Uh, really seems like a misnomer now that it's in third place, Titan. Um, it also has, get this, 10.6 million cores. Over 10.5 million cores. That is incredible. That's more than three times the cores of the previous leader, uh, which was uh, China's Tiane, Tiane 2. Uh, and it's 20 times the, the amount of cores that Titan has. 
It also has 1.31 petabytes of primary memory. Now, that may seem like a lot, um, but actually it's not as much memory as it seems considering how many cores this thing has. And that actually was done on purpose because if this thing had a more reasonable amount of memory that you would expect for its size, it would be crazy power hungry. You would need the power of a city to get this thing to run properly. So that's actually... Um, a very good strategy. It's also one of the world's most efficient systems. It has a peak power consumption under load is 15.37 megawatts or six gigaflops per watt, whatever. So also this computer isn't like a concept car or a demo model. This thing is ready to go. Plug it in. It's ready to go. Uh, so that's also pretty interesting. Now, I've got a cool quote from Jack Dungara, who is a University of Tennessee computer scientist. He was actually using this machine. He said it's running very high rates of execution speed, very good power efficiency. It's really quite impressive. Now, that's high praise coming from the guy who created the top 500 benchmark uh, when it first was used in 1993, and of course, still ranks, uh, still ranking them today. So this is uh, an amazing accomplishment. Not just the supercomputer, but the actual journey itself to get to this incredible end product. Think about it. 15 years ago, China had no supercomputers in the top 500. The U.S. had over half of the top 500, over 250 machines. 15 years ago. Now, China has more top supercomputers than anyone else with 167, while the U.S. and Europe have uh, 165 and 105, respectively. And yet even more dramatic, for the first time ever, the U.S. has been eclipsed in total supercomputer power, with China having 211 uh, petaflops in total, uh, United States only 173. Oh, another interesting aside is that the chips were completely made by China. They are no longer using Intel chips, and uh, and they're pretty sweet. Horst Simon, a supercomputing expert and deputy director of the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, he said, we're seeing an inflection point, and he's absolutely correct. This is a fundamental change in supercomputer dominance. So China has now clearly shown that it's committed to a sustained investment in high-performance computing, which is bearing incredible fruit right now. With this technology, they could take the lead in worldwide supercomputer sales. They're already at 34%. Uh, they could uh, they could increase that dramatically, possibly, with this. Uh, research and development in climate, weather, and earth systems modeling, life science research, advanced manufacturing, data analytics, the list goes on and on. This could give them an, a fantastic advantage in all those areas. And the U.S., of course, is as frustratingly short-sighted as ever. Um, there is actual legal legislation in existence right now trying to get a supercomputer uh, funding boost, but that's been stuck in the Senate for a year, a whole year, and it's still stuck in the Senate. Also, uh, Representative Randy Holtgren, who is a Republican from uh, the state of Illinois in the United States, his act – The American Supercomputing Leadership Act has been twice passed by the House of Representatives. He said, Massive domestic gains in computer power are necessary to address the national security, scientific, and healthcare challenges of the future. And I'll add to that, we are totally blowing it in the United States. So what about the future? What's uh, what's on the horizon here? So our Department of Energy may have a faster machine in 2018, 
uh, which is expected to range from 150 to 200 petaflops, uh, which is uh, a, a nice little bump over what they're doing uh, in China at just uh, just about 100. And so that's awesome. But that's two years away. That's an eternity in computer time. So much can happen in that in that time. For example, China is now predicting that they will have the first exascale computer in 2020, years before anyone else. You may not have uh, heard of exascale computing. That is one of the holy grails of of computing right now. That's 1,000 petaflops or an exaflop. Many of the world's most pressing computational problems can only be significantly addressed by exascale computing. At a quintillion operations per second, we can make incredible strides at things like developing controlled fusion, modeling the brain, drug development, designing high-performance materials. This this is similar in many ways to molecular nanotechnology in that the country or corporations that develop exascale computing first will have a tremendous economic and scientific advantage at addressing some of these problems that probably can only realistically realistically be dealt with with an exascale uh, supercomputer. Um, So if other countries want to remain competitive, uh, they really need to take high-performance computing, research and development more seriously than they're doing now or basically resign themselves to being third-class supercomputing citizens. So in closing, I want to congratulate China on this incredible achievement. I certainly hope this advance motivates other countries to take this highest level of computing as seriously as they clearly take it in China. Well, I would imagine anybody that you know that in every country would want their government to spend the money and be, you know, be a world leader in that. I'm, I'm excited that these achievements are being made because it is a gain in humanity. And it's kind of like, you know, rising tide, you know, all ships rise in a rising tide. It'll, it's a, it's still going to be awesome. Um, I just hope, like you were saying, Bob, like other countries get excited, you know, they feel the squeeze and they put a lot of money in time and then it just keeps rotating around the planet. How about that? Kara, tell me why Tell me why music has such an emotional effect. So I don't know if I can really tell you why, but I can tell you a little bit of the how. So have you guys ever experienced that feeling where you're listening to music that's incredibly emotional and you physically get chills? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So this happens to about two-thirds to even three-fourths of people when surveyed. Um, They say that they have this experience. Now, in a study that was performed by Harvard and Wesleyan researchers, they refer to this as a chill response. But in doing some of my research, I actually found – I love it when I get to introduce two words in an episode – the term frissions, F-R-I-S-S-O-N-S. And that is this kind of aesthetic chill response that you have in your body. Is that like Netflix and chill? (laughs) Well, the funny thing is it's sometimes called a skin orgasm. So you make the connection there. Um, But yeah, frisions. So if you ever have that experience, then you know, you can say, oh my God, I'm having a frisson. Interesting. So they wanted to know what is happening when people have these frisions. And there's been a lot of research about music appreciation in the past, about having pleasurable um, reactions to music. And it doesn't seem like it really confers any sort of evolutionary advantage. So of course, researchers are interested in what is actually going on in the brain. And 
potentially where we would have evolved that response from. And so historically, we have seen many, many studies show that there is a strong dopamine response in um, in reaction to pleasurable stimuli, music being one of those things. But these researchers were a little bit more interested in the full circuitry. So they used a type of imaging called diffusion tensor imaging. That seems like it's sort of kind of like a type of MRI that specifically focuses on fiber tracks. So it's looking at axons or white matter in the brain. And because of the way that water actually travels within these fiber tracks, it, it tends to diffuse more efficiently going down the axons than across them. Um, fiber tractography, which is the way that DTIs, diffusion tensor images, are read, um, can actually kind of reconstruct images for the researchers of how much white matter is actually present. And so that is one of the things that they decided to look at in this study. So as we know from neuroimaging studies, oftentimes the sample sizes are very small. And that was also the case here. We're looking at 20 individuals, 10 who on survey said that they can consistently experience that chill response and 10 who say that they never experience it. And they were also able to collect which pieces of music really reliable elicited it and they put these people in the scanner and they played that music and then they looked at their brains. Um, they also did some studies on personality uh, traits like the big five personality traits and historically they have found that individuals who experience these kind of chill responses to music also tend to measure high on things like openness to new experiences. Now a lot of this is correlation so they wanted to know you know what's going on in the brain and can we even start to parse out any sort of causal links, which ultimately I don't think they were able to do. So what they did find is that when looking at the brains of these individuals, there was actually larger tract volume going from the superior, actually the posterior portion of the superior temporal gyrus, which is part of the auditory system. It's, you know, part of the brain where music would be heard, which makes perfect sense. And those tracks moving into both the medial prefrontal cortex and also the um, anterior insula. And these two regions are implicated in emotional processing. So these are things that were hypothesized at the beginning of the study. There are other types of studies that show that these regions are implicated in having an emotional response to music. But what these researchers actually found is that the tract volume is, is physically higher. So there is a biological kind of structural difference in the brains, a significant difference in the brains of those who can consistently experience that chill response compared to their match controls. Um, and, and the difference was pretty, pretty sizable. So obviously, that doesn't really answer the question about, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Is this something that's strengthened over time because they already have that experience? Or does the actual neural circuitry contribute to that experience? But it does show that there are some physical structural differences in the brains of those who have that kind of deep emotional response when they hear music. I'll tell you what, I um, was a singer in a past life. And when I was a young Mormon, I would sing a lot in church. And to this day, even though I'm an atheist, sacred music, specifically church music, gives me these intense chills. And I used to think of that as some sort of reinforcement of my faith. And now I understand that I just really get emotional when I listen to beautiful music. Oh, yeah. Music could be incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. 
the combination of music and imagery, like in movies. Yeah. It puts it on steroids. Like, does they, they multiply together? The effect can be so profound. But Kara, oh, yeah. I, if you ever watch a movie where the track is like where the score is taken out, it's crazy how dead the movie feels. Or, Kara, have you seen them put different music on top of a scene that you would normally think would be sad or whatever? And the music can uh, change the tone completely. It's really profound. Yeah. It's pretty intense. And so, you know, it, it, it's kind of no wonder that we do have these deep emotional responses to it. But the interesting thing is that there are, you know, people, not not a small number of people, who either report not really feeling anything when they listen to music or who have never had that physical experience that we're describing here. And the interesting thing is it does seem to be the case that their brains are physically different. I've often wondered why, you know, we music has an effect on us at all. You know, I get the, I understand that you're saying that they can see how it changes the brain or what happens yeah. in the brain when we listen. But, you know, it's almost like, why do we appreciate the sunrise and, and art and all that? It's kind of, it's a, you know, Steve, I'm sure you have some way to quantify it, but to me. It's- yeah. Well, the way I look at it is so clearly, you know, uh, creatures with central nervous systems and even creatures without central nervous systems, the whole idea of being uh, positively and negatively affected by stimuli is sort of baked in to any nervous system that mm-hmm. you know, we know about on the earth, right? So it's kind of fundamental to, to how nervous systems are wired that certain things are pleasurable, attractive to us, reinforce our behavior. Other things give us a negative avoidance reaction. You know, that has been part of our nervous system throughout our entire evolution, probably. And we evolved very sophisticated uh, things that stimulate the brain to give us some kind of positive reward, you know, happy, pleasurable feeling and or the opposite, you know, dystopic, you know, sort of negative reaction. And there are certain there are very complicated things can trigger that. Uh, certainly, it, it seems like certain symmetries, you know, symmetries in music and art, uh, certain patterns can, you know, evoke these pleasurable, satisfying sensations, even, you know, emotional sensations. Uh, it's, it's very interesting, you know, why that is. And how different it is between individuals. You know, some people will listen to like, you know, the Sprock Zarathustra, like this big intense Wagner piece, and they'll just feel so much. And other people are like, oh, it sounds like war and it's scary. And then they'll want to listen to like a Chopin that's much lighter and calmer, and that'll be what really touches them. It, there's so many individual differences. Oh, yeah. But it's true. Even in the introduction of this of this paper, the the researchers um, do a great job of kind of summarizing a lot of previous research about aesthetic judgment, about these aesthetic um, experiences, and the reward network that is um, responding to all of these different sensory pleasures. So, dopaminergic pathways are are heavily implicated in obviously food, sex, drugs, but also like art music, um, even pro-social stuff like doing good, um, doing um, volunteer work tends to have this sort of overlap of the types of reward pathways that are implicated. So there must be something, I shouldn't say there must be, but it does seem likely that there is an evolutionary advantage even on these things that we think of as higher order aesthetic experiences because they get to those basic feelings. It could just be an epiphenomenon. It doesn't doesn't yeah. necessarily have to be directly um, advantageous. That's kind of 
what I was getting to. It's baked into our brain. And so it's going to, there's going to be a lot of quirky, interesting things that will make us feel good or satisfied or whatever. There's, there's something, uh, called, I can't remember if we've talked about this on the show. I've wrote about it, the ASMR. The oh, yeah, yeah. We've talked about ASMR. I covered yeah. it for a different – for like a TV show and it was fascinating to me. This yeah, idea yeah. that these certain types of sounds and a lot of times it's like whispering or like clickety-clacketing and it actually gives people what they call a brain orgasm. Yeah, Kara, you said that that noisy I played a few weeks ago – Yeah, was it was really a little pleasing. ASMR for me. Yeah, that's true. I did have that and I don't usually get that response. Some people who say that they have ASMR like can really consistently kick it in by by listening or watching the same videos. That was one of the few first times that I've ever experienced that other than listening to beautiful music. So that was interesting. For me, I think a lot of the emotional experience that I have to music, sure, a lot of it has to do with patterns and rhythms and the way that things ebb and swell. But I think for me personally, a lot of it has to do with the actual pitch. Like things that happen in the same register tend to be very emotional for me, um, as opposed to maybe things that are more percussive. Like this is so different for for individual people, and this is only a very basic. This study um, dig into not even why that is, but how that happens. Yeah, we're just looking at what circuits in the brain are being activated, but it doesn't really tell us anything about why that happens. It doesn't, and there's even a great quote in a Smithsonian article that covered this study um, that was from Philip Ball, who writes for Nature News. He said, quote, although it is worth knowing that musical chills are neurologically akin to the responses invoked by sex or drugs, an approach that cannot distinguish Bach from barbiturates is surely limited. Right. I love I that. Like All right, Jay, get us up to date on Who's That Noisy? Yeah, last week, guys, I played this noisy. Any guesses? Some sort of motor. Yeah, it definitely sounds like an electric motor would be my guess. Like a, like a drone, maybe? Good guesses, guys. So uh, this was a remote control car. Huh. And at, at the highest pitch, it was going 200 miles an hour. And it was going on a circular track. And I did some research. And I do believe that the car was tethered. So it was going around uh. a sloped circular track. That was probably about the size of half a tennis court. And uh, it just was going around and around and around and around. And they just pegged it. Um, I also suspect that it was not just running on normal fuel. It was running on a high-end fuel. So very cool. Yeah. And it's, it's a very odd noise um, because there's a combination of like the na- this noise of the, the wheels on the track and then the noise of the engines spinning out and then of course it's going by the camera wheel 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 like that so you get the uh the doppler effect as well so we did get uh, a guess there had several correct guesses one listener named shane hillier said it's a it's a uh, boat going in circles oh so close shane so close not a, not not a remote control boat um Michael, this man, a listener named Michael wrote in, said uh, this week's Who's That Noisy is tethered to a nitro car. Yes, I do believe it was a nitro, nitrous oxide car. And he said, on an unrelated note, thanks again for the recording you did for my wedding. Really made our day. Um, this was a listener who um, I believe won an auction. 
Um, or no, I think I did this one for free because it was a wedding. And I gave them a funny, uh, a funny recording that they played at their wedding. So I'm glad you enjoyed it, Michael. And uh, it was my pleasure. So a new noisy for this week. What is this? What the hell was that, Kara? I don't know. Crazy, right? <laughs> I think it's coming to get me. Uh, this That was a noisy sent in by a listener named Ken Briodog. Dog. Briodog. Thank you, Ken. I, hey, Ken's I from like Connecticut. It. So if you have any guesses on what that noisy is, and if you have any cool noises that you've run across, or should I say noises that you've run across over the past couple of weeks, email me directly at WTN at TheSkepticsGuide.org. Thank you, Jay. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Squarespace.com. Hey, Kara, every uh, time we do an ad for Squarespace, you talk about your website and everything, but can you tell me more about what it was like to create it? Because I think that's the part that people really need to hear about. Yeah, I mean, it took less than a night and I had so much content. At first, it was overwhelming to decide to sit down and make a website, but honestly, it's, you know, drag and drop and the instructions are right in front of you. It's completely intuitive. I was able to build a site that had you know, a pretty intense site navigation, multiple pages and then pages within those pages. And my personal podcast is actually hosted on Squarespace as a blog. It was really, really easy. Yeah, that's the part about it that I don't think a lot of people realize when they hear this. It's like you really can build your website, if not in a night, in days. The the intuitive back-end system makes it just super easy. You don't have to worry about anything but just deciding what functionality you want your site to have. You don't even really have to have any design experience because there are these pre-laid out templates that you can choose and it makes it a breeze. And it all starts at $8 a month and you get a free domain if you sign up for a year. Yeah, so guys, start your free trial today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. And of course, when you decide to sign up, make sure you use the offer code SGU to get 10% off your first purchase. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. All right, we're going to do uh, well, one email, but also refer to a bunch of emails. As I predicted two weeks ago, we were going to get a lot of feedback on our, our discussion about the CDC and studying uh, gun violence. And oh, we yeah. did. We did. Very predictable type of response. This uh, one response comes from Steve. Um, let's skip the preamble a little bit. He continues. Uh, it's a very long email. I want to get to the meat. He says, I can't help but notice that the show has taken a sharp left turn into the toilet since Kara joined the cast. Oh, God. <laughs> and she, every week, either she makes an at some asinine political comment, like something that doesn't exist, like voter fraud, or another <laughs> member of the cast has to take a sneering shot at either Fox News, the Republicans, or Donald Trump. I never remember this being the case before she joined the show. It's almost like her bad behavior is dragging the rest of you down, like how Whoa. a misbehaving kid in a class encourages the other kids to act up. And that brings us to this week's episode, the last I will be joining you for. I can listen to you guys talk about black holes, subatomic particles, going to Mars, and debunking science stories that are in the news all day long. But when you take an anti-gun stance, you just lost me as a listener. For me, knowing that there is an agenda behind your facts kills your credibility. I found and read the article you mentioned on the show. My conclusion is that the AMA is an activist partisan organization, and they do not try to hide their anti-gun, anti-Second Amendment activist positions. Is this worthy of a show devoted to skepticism? 
There is no such thing as, in quotes, gun violence. There is people violence. The CDC or AMA studying guns is a waste of money and just another regressive attempt at an end run around the Constitution, the goal of which is to declare gun violence an epidemic and a public health issue and impose more gun laws on honest people and doing nothing to solve the problem. Maybe you don't care. Maybe you don't want people like me in your club. And you are welcome to tell me to go pound sand. I will never block nasty things, sue or harass you. But if your mission truly is to promote science and critical thinking, pissing in the face of half the country is probably not the best tactic. If you ever start doing a show on science again, let me know. Oh, there's so much to say. Yeah, there's wow. a lot to, lot to unpack there. There's a lot to unpack there. But uh, And this is not atypical. I, I have mentioned before that whenever we talk, we talk about an issue that I mean, that has a political uh, angle to it. I, you know, get emails declaring me either a hopeless conservative or a hopeless liberal, whatever the issue happens to be. Mm. So I do want to take the opportunity to reiterate the editorial policy of the SGU, which is that we are an apolitical show. We are a science show. We promote science, skepticism, critical thinking, logic, and reason. Uh, we do feel that this should apply to a broad range of subjects, especially those that have some kind of uh, direct impact on the world. You know, like we try to deal with important issues like vaccines and GMOs and global warming and in this case, uh, gun violence. But of course, whenever you do that, you always run the risk of running across people's very tightly held and very emotionally held opinions. So that doesn't mean that we don't have a political bias ourselves. We do, although I think you would probably be surprised at what that is. Uh, it's always, you know, I always laugh when people make these ridiculous assumptions about what they think my politics are, and they're never right. Let me <laughs> just say that. And it, uh, you know, granted, it's not, I don't, you know, adhere to any simplistic label, so you can't really put a label on my politics. And whenever you try to do that, I guarantee you you're wrong. And I think the same is true of, of most of us. I think, yeah, Kara, probably you're towards the left end of the spectrum on the show, but actually you're to the right of Rebecca, quite yeah. honestly. So it's, you know, Steve has not been paying attention for the last nine years if he thinks <laughs> that you have taken the show to the left. I think part of it is a, um, an article artifact of the fact that we're in an election year yeah yeah it's uh it's it's you know it's that's why we can't always do these before and after analyses in science because there's yeah. so many confabulating factors like right. trump is running for president maybe that's why trump has made his way into our conversations more often yeah i do want to say so again we we, we try to avoid just pure political speech on this show mm -hmm. we, we, we really do and, and if it, it sneaks in i i do tend to edit it out but I have let a few statements on Donald Trump get through, and here's why. And I'll just say this. my I have problems with Donald Trump. They have nothing to do with his politics. They have nothing to do with where he falls on the right-to-left political spectrum. They are all about the fact that he is anti-science. He, yeah. he thinks vaccines cause autism. He said that 10 years ago. He was publicly corrected on that fact over the last 10 years, and he has not changed his opinion at all. He clearly, he clearly has disdain for experts, for intellectuals, for scientists. He's a conspiracy theorist. He's anti-science. 
And that's my problem with him. And I think that's the context of how he's come up on the show yes. historically. And let's not forget that we've also talked about how Bernie Sanders is anti-GMO. Yeah. And I personally did a story about Hillary Clinton pandering to UFO enthusiasts. Yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> both both Sanders and Hillary Clinton pander to alternative medicine proponents. Yep. So we talk about politicians and politics when there's a scientific angle. And we do try to keep it about the science. But of course, people are tribal. You know, and people hear us talk about Hillary Clinton and or or Donald Trump or whatever, and they because of our tribal instincts, the reaction is, well, you're not on my side, therefore you're on the enemy's side, and then they ascribe to us all of the things they fantasize the enemy thinks or feels or believes. So I think that Steve's paragraph here says a lot. Um, let's talk. Let's go. Let's shift now to the to the to the gun violence issue, which is a really tricky issue. Let me say that. There's a few things I want to chat about about this. But first, I really want to encourage everyone listening to this to set aside their ideology and their politics and to try to look at this from the perspective that we are on the show are trying to look at it seriously. I'm very personally interested in the issue of of guns gun control, gun violence, you know, et cetera, because it is a great topic if you want to flex your critical thinking skills. It's ex- extremely challenging. There is so much sloppy thinking about this issue. And for me, I'm just trying to like really deconstruct and unpack the logic that people are using to evaluate it for its validity and to really try to wrap my head around this very complicated issue from a purely critical thinking and scientific point of view. It's very hard. It's very difficult. There's so much noise that it's really easy to to cherry pick the arguments and the logic and the factoids that you need to defend your tribal position. Very easy. So we'll just pick some stuff at random and and go for it. Steve says, there is no such thing as gun violence. Okay, that's a massive premise right there. That is a core massive premise. There's no such... And I find that to be a very common premise among um, those promoting gun rights, that they, they essentially want to argue that guns are completely incidental. As he said, they're a tool that could be used for anything. Uh, I'm pulling in things that other people have emailed me as well. The guns are completely incidental. The guns aren't doing anything. It's the old guns don't kill people. People kill people. We should be entirely focusing on the people and not on the tools they happen to use to commit their violence. So, but I think that there's a straw man in there. Uh, and the straw man is this notion that guns are somehow causing the violence or that they are somehow implicit to the violence. But actually, the position of people who are concerned about gun violence, and again, this is not about taking away your rights, taking away the guns from honest people and doing nothing about the problem. People, You have to keep the, the principle of charity, apply that a little bit here. People just don't want there to be mass killings, right? We're just a li- Everyone is just a little bothered by the fact that thousands of people die a year in the United States with guns. That's what, that's what people are concerned about, not whatever liberal fantasy you have. In any case, saying that guns are entirely incidental is actually missing the real point, which is not that guns are causing violence or that these people wouldn't have been violent anyway. The question is, to what extent 
does the availability and the, the ubiquity of guns in our society increase the lethality of violent events when they do occur? That, that's the issue. And if, if you are a proponent of gun rights and, and are anti-gun control, that's the point you need to be addressing. Stop saying there's no such thing as gun violence. You're entirely missing the point of the other side, and therefore you're not advancing this discussion at all. It's all about the effect on the lethality. For example, when we mentioned that, yeah, something like uh, there's 30,000 gun deaths a year, but like 20,000 of those are suicides. And there was a lot of discussion about, well, the guns are incidental to the suicide. No, they're not really. It's not why the person's killing themselves, but the one most solid predictor of dying from suicide in somebody who, who attempts suicide is the availability of a gun. If you don't have a gun at hand, you are much less likely to die from your suicide attempt than if you do have access to a gun. It's not incidental. It increases the lethality. It's not about what's causing the suicide. It's about the lethality of it. Same thing with violence. When people go on a violent spree, you know, people say, well, yeah, that guy in China attacked 30 people with a kitchen knife. Yeah, he wounded 30 people and killed no one. The, the presence of a gun increases the lethality of the attack, not the presence of the attack. And that's why you see nuanced arguments about different kinds of controls, like when we talk about uh, an automatic or a semi-automatic weapon versus a non-automatic weapon or a military-grade weapon versus a smaller caliber weapon. That's why you start to see those nuanced arguments because of how lethal certain weapons can be. Uh, presumably. I mean, so I think part of the trick here is that we have a dearth mm. of actual hard evidence. I'm going to get to that in yeah. a second because we'll, we'll, we'll shift to the uh, the research angle because a study came out today by coincidence I want to talk about. Oh, okay. Uh, so just think very carefully about the logic that you're using. That's what I'm interested in. Is, is, the, is the logic really valid here? Are we having a, a productive conversation? Are we adhering to the principle of charity? Or are we just defending our tribe and you know portraying the other side as in these ridiculous terms that really doesn't apply to anybody? You know what I mean? And it cuts both ways. Like I've I've just been assaulted by the illogic on this issue from every angle over the last few weeks since 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 Orlando. Really, I really feel like on Facebook, on email, everything. It's like for example, on the left, uh, people will say, "Well, it's, it's not about mental illness. Most people who are mentally ill do are not violent." But then. On the pro-gun side, they'll say it's not about guns. Most people who own guns are not violent, and most guns are not used in violent crimes. So both sides are using the same bad logic. It's like, okay, but it's somewhat about mental illness because some of the people, like at the Newtown shooting, uh, who, who performed uh, the mass, mass shooting – were mentally ill, did slip through the cracks. We do absolutely have a problem with mental illness and and having a poor infrastructure for dealing people with mental illness in this country. And some of that, some of those people who slip through the cracks do end up being mass shooters. So that is absolutely relevant to the issue. But again, and on the other side, the availability of especially rapid fire weapons does seem to increase the lethality of these attacks. And so they are relevant to that degree as well. But both are trying to use that same poor logic to try to say, oh, the issues we 
care about are what's important and these other issues are incidental. Nah, it's, it's a complicated multifactorial picture. It's culture. It is terrorism. It is homophobia, apparently. It is mental illness. It is the availability of certain kinds of weapons. All of those things are clearly playing some role. I would like to see, you know, all, everything on the table and then having an evidence-based discussion about it. But and that gets, that gets us to the research component, right? By coincidence, JAMA published a study today looking at the Australia experience over the last 20 years. Have you guys seen this? So we talked about this because Richard Saunders was on the show. We brought up the fact that in 1996, Australia banned uh, certain kinds of weapons. They basically banned semi-automatic rifles. Richard said that there was a voluntary buyback. Uh, and a number of writers pointed out that, that it was actually mandatory. But what I found out that it was both – that there was certain certain kinds of weapons were were mandatory they were banned and you had a certain time period to sell them to the government or you know you would be found you know guilty of a crime but then there were other classes of weapons where the the, the selling them to the government was com- entirely voluntary and a lot of and what were those a lot of people a lot of people did sell those kinds of weapons back so like there were some kinds like any weapon even if even if the weapon itself wasn't banned you could still if it was just an unwanted weapon like whatever mm-hmm. you inherited a weapon from your father you didn't want it anymore whatever so you know, like single shot rifles were not banned but if you wanted to sell one back to the to the government you could so that dividing line was kind of along the like sporting weapons versus um, military assault style weapons. Yeah, again, there's, there's so many problems with the discussion because like what yeah. how you define quote unquote assault weapon is so vague, and mm-hmm. and uh, and when like uh, in the assault weapon ban in the United States that lasted for ten years, that defined assault weapons very specifically, but it included a lot of features that don't necessarily contribute to the, to the lethality of the weapons. And so that opened the door to a lot of criticism is that you're just banning scary looking or scary sounding weapons that are, and not taking an evidence-based approach to what features actually put people at higher risk. Oh, yeah. It's just one in a long line of examples of the way that we write legislation that yeah. has nothing to do with science and or everything reality. to do yeah, with lobbying and truthiness. Yeah. So I, I get it. I get I get <laughs> <laughs> why you might feel if you are you know pro gun why you would feel like a lot of anti gun or gun control issues are irrational or cosmetic and are not really addressing the issue uh but at the same time you know the i think like the n r a position is kind of designed to box out any even discussion of 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 gun control of doing any kind of measure that might decrease the lethality of these events like for mm-hmm. example, they say that if you propose one kind of measure, they'll say, well, that infringes too much on our our gun rights. And if you impose a milder measure, they'll say, well, that won't work. So anything that's mild won't work and anything that's severe is too, is too infringing. Yeah, it definitely seems like a slippery slope fear, you know? Well, that's, the, a, yeah, that's also part of it, yeah. Or mm-hmm. they'll say like with the gun ban, the, uh, the, the quote-unquote assault weapon ban, uh, like 1996 – Right, or 1993 to 2003, it was about 10 years. Uh, and then at sunset, um, that it didn't have any effect in the United States. Well, yeah, but that's because they didn't do a, they didn't ban them. They just banned the sale of them, but they didn't f- force people to sell them to the government or they didn't confiscate them. So it didn't really change the number of weapons that were out there. That kind of just, we're not going to sell them anymore would probably take 50 years to have an effect. So that's the other thing. It's like they don't want, 
So, and when you take a measure that would take a long time to work, they say, well, it didn't work in the short term, so we're not going to even let it exist for a long term. So, you know what I mean? So there's a lot of illogic that sort of prevents there from being any progress on trying to address this issue. And the burden of proof, which is something that I've seen a lot when when you see coverage on the news of these little snippets of individuals who are testifying before Congress or of individual representatives who are talking about either why they're for or why they're against certain types of um, weapons uh, control or weapons bans, you'll see oftentimes this argument that like, well, there's no evidence to show that if we did ban that, that it would make any difference. So because of that, I'm against the ban, which is like really problematic thinking because it's putting the burden of proof kind of on the wrong side. Like until you can prove it to me that it'll make things better, I don't want to do it. But then now you can't ever prove it. Right. You can't ever prove it if you can't experiment with different laws. Yeah. So you need you need the ability to try things out in order to you know so at least states need to be able to experiment with different measures this and then we could follow and see what effect that they have but if you if you want the evidence first you'll never get it because you how could you mm-hmm. get it what what kind of evidence do you imagine occurring in the absence of any laws uh, yeah. all right so the, let me quickly review the data from the last twenty years of the Australia semi-automatic weapon ban prior to the ban. Gun deaths, overall gun deaths, were declining by about 3% per year. After the gun ban, they declined by about 5% per year, which doesn't sound like a huge difference, 3% to 5%, but you know, you change the slope of those lines, it's cumulative over 20 years. That's a significant difference. Also, the number of mass shootings, uh, which is they define as five or more deaths, not including the shooter themselves. The number of mass shootings in the 20 years prior to the ban uh, was, I think, 13 with 60 to 70 total deaths. The number of mass shootings after the ban was zero. And that's what, again, most gun control proponents point to as the big evidence for the effectiveness of at least that measure. However, the data is more complicated because the number of non-gun-related deaths decreased by even a greater margin than gun-related deaths over the last Mm. 20 years. So unless you're going to argue that banning guns reduced non-gun violence, you know, it's hard to say that. It's Basically, the authors concluded, therefore, we can't make any conclusions about the effect of that gun ban on violence, on either gun violence or non-gun violence, because they they both decreased at an accelerated rate. And in fact, the non-gun violence decreased even faster than the gun violence after the gun ban. So it's a mix. It's, it's mixed. And therefore you could basically see whatever you want in it. You know, uh, you could make pull out whatever piece that you want in order to make whatever argument, defend whatever side you want. But the bottom line mm-hmm. is there's not exactly strong support there for any one particular position. Um, you could say it accelerated, you know, it, it, it prevented any mass shootings. It accelerated the rate of decreased gun violence, but it's, you know, it's, tainted by the fact that, uh, you know, again, we're not controlling for variables, right? It's an observational study. You know, but other violence was also decreasing. There could be some other th- other factors were, you know, just coincidentally decreasing violence or who knows. It's hard to unpack that with a single study. You need multiple, multiple, you know, with that kind of uncontrolled observations, especially sociological where there's so many variables, which again gets us back to research. So again, you know, Steve, we were not taking an anti-gun or a pro-gun control stance on the show two weeks ago. All we said was that we think the research, the research should be allowed to happen. 
But if you're going to take this, which I think is a very illogical and extreme position that there's no such thing as gun violence, which is really a semantic game, in my opinion, mm-hmm. you know, just to, to argue that we shouldn't do any research, ah, that, to me, that's a hard position to defend. All we're saying is gather the data. Yeah. How could you ever argue against doing research? Well, I have argued against doing research, so you can. And, and what? Like, I don't think that we should research magical therapies in medicine. That can't possibly work. It's a waste of resources, and it's just used to promote them. So, I, But I'll, that's also because the research has already been done. Well, that's partly why. But there's e- a prior plausibility argument. There's a prior yeah. plausibility argument. I don't think that applies here. It's not a prior plausibility argument. It, even if they have misbehaved, then that's what you should be criticizing, not just let's ban yes. research, because then that – gives us no ability to gather data. Science needs to inform policy, right? Mm -hmm. Especially in areas like this where it's so contentious and so complicated. Logic and science needs to inform, not make policy, but inform policy. But how can you do that if you're not doing the research? So that's really the only position we took. And that's the only position that the show is taking, the SGU is taking this week, is that just slow down, Think logically, (laughs) think critically, and let's gather data and let's have evidence-based, science-informed policy, but we're not promoting any one political agenda or or side of this equation here because that's not what we do on the show. Where it's hard, again, it's hard. We get it. It's hard to parse that from the politics, but just you know, we do try. We do sincerely try. That is our editorial policy. Let's move on to science or fiction. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Just have three regular news items this week. Jay, you missed it. I swept Bob and Carol last week. Well, you wouldn't have Uh, if I were there. Sorry, guys. You can say that. You can say that. It's easy. Sure I can. All right. Uh We'll we'll see how you do this week. Right. Item number one, a recent study finds that fish evolving to live at least part of the time on land has likely independently occurred 33 times in extant families. Item number two, a new study finds that older subjects are better able to process visually complex images, suggesting that our brains learn to improve such processing over time. And item number three, a new analysis of Pluto from the New Horizons images supports the conclusion that Pluto contains subsurface liquid water today. All right. Shall I go first then? Yes, Jay. Of course, after that braggadocio, you should go first. (laughs) So this first one about the the fish, uh, they they evolved, Bob, uh, to live at least part of the time on land, these particular fish. And uh, they're likely you read in- well. Yeah, they independently occurred 33 times in extant uh, families. Kara, you could use that as a word of the week if you want extant. I don't know if Bob knows what that word means. It's Ex- still existing, punk. <laughs> extant, <laughs> yeah. Jay. Extant is the opposite of extinct. Whatever. <laughs> Bottom line is, I believe that this item is science because I like the number three. <laughs> And it's used twice here. No, no. Yeah, this is really cool. This is really interesting. I mean, you got to go, wow, you know, they occurred independently 33 times. You know, and I'm assuming Steve's saying 33 different times this type of thing had evolved. Very freaking cool. I don't have any specific information on that, but I don't see any reason why that wouldn't happen. The second one here about a new study that finds older subjects are better able to process visually complex images. Interesting, um, but I would... 
I would very much think that the exact opposite is happening here because I don't think that that the human body gets better at anything as we age. And I think it's it's pretty obvious that um, we don't get better at analyzing vis- visually complicated images. I think when we get older, I believe I believe that you know, especially with like issues like lack of sleep, the changes in the brain and all that. And the fact that even, you know, our eyes age and that we're not seeing as clearly. I just don't think that this one is science. And then the last one, uh, the water, the uh, subsurface liquid water. Yeah, absolutely with Pluto. Um, I think that one is science. So this second one here is the fiction. Bob, go next. 33 times fish evolved to live on land or part of the time, which I think is the key word right here. 33 sounds like a lot, but when I you know, saw that part of the time on land, I was like, okay. That of course increases the odds because it's not a you know a permanent migration to the land. So I can kind of see that one. Pluto, uh, subsurface liquid. Whoa, that's quite interesting. I mean, Pluto is so small. I'm not sure how that would happen. Um, there's, I mean, it's. I would think it would be pretty much a, a dead world with no active core at this point. Perhaps not. So I'm curious to see how how that would be and what the evidence is. But it's still uh, uh, less compelling. Then uh, number two here, the oldest old, older subjects uh, being able to read and process visual image imagery. Yeah, I'm not buying that. I, I think that your vision definitely takes a hit in, in many different ways, in, including uh, being able to process you know complex images. So I got to agree with Jay and say that's fiction. Okay, Kara. All right. So a recent study finds that fish evolving to live at least part of the time on land has likely independently occurred 33 times in extant families. is quite interesting. I, I recently interviewed Neil Shubin and learned a lot about Tiktaalik, you know, one of these yeah. early tetrapods. Who it's, it, you know, he's focused so much of his uh, research on this one species that does seem to feed into most of us who are alive today, but maybe the fish themselves had had a bigger kind of evolutionary branch behind them. And it's not uncommon, I think, in the animal kingdom that we do find multiple rounds of uh, evolutionary branches that terminate. So it's, it's fascinating when that does seem to be the case. I want it to be the case. So I'm going to say it is the case. And then skipping down to Pluto and New Horizons, uh, Pluto may contain a subsurface liquid water ocean. Obviously, it seems unlikely because it's so far away and it's so freaking cold. But, you know, we, we see it in Jupiter's moons. They're also very far away, obviously not as far away from the sun as Pluto. But because of tidal forces, because of the energy that occurs underneath that um, that ice shell, there does seem to be enough heat energy to keep the the water liquid in many places where we didn't think it was possible before. So I'm going to say that that one's science as well. Um, this is going to be a full agreement rogue night. Older subjects being better able to process visually complex images just flies in the face of everything I know about the aging process and about uh, visual perception. So it's it's hard for me to see that there's some form of trickery in the way you wrote this one, uh, Steve. So I've, I've just got to say that it is the fiction that older subjects would be better able to process visually complex All images. Right. You guys are united. Steve, okay. do you see what happened here? I, I know how you you're going to... the tone? You're <laughs> going to no, take credit see- for it if you, got them, if you get it correct. But what if you don't get it correct? I will take the negative credit. 
All right. That's a, that's that's how that's this called works. blame, Jay. That's called blame, by the that's way. That's called blame. Yeah. Take I have the blame. To... Wait, wait. That's a very political <laughs> political statement I just made, right? Uh, no, Negative credit. Clearly, Steve, awesome. I have influenced the rogues this evening. I, they, you, did you notice their lack of, of GWJ? They didn't want to even say that because it would be too, giving me too much credit. You see what happens? Well, let's take this in order. A recent okay. study finds that fish evolving to live at least part of the time on land has likely independently occurred. 33 times in extant families. You all think this one is science, and this one is science. Science. Thank you. That's pretty Woo-hoo. cool. Yeah, so yeah. 33. 33 different times. Uh, so the authors were saying, so these are in different fish families. They probably occurred independently. In other words, they don't have a common ancestor who was out of the water. Yeah. So that's, and this is all in living fish. So cool. By the way, as an aside, are you aware of the fact that there is so much more diversity? actually even disparity among fish than there are among all other vertebrates. So if you think about like birds, reptiles, mammals, and amphibians, we're one tiny little twig on the fish, you know, family tree. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense? Sure. Well, yeah, they like bacteria who have been along, who have been around for so long, their metabolisms are so distinct because they've been around for so long. So the fish have been around for so much longer, so they're more diverse. We're, we are we are more closely related to some fish than they are to other fish. That's, That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> I that love just it. Puts it into perspective. So yeah, so we're talking about thirty three different fish families. These are widely diverse, evolutionarily speaking. And what this suggests is that it's a lot easier for fish to start to spend some of their time out of the water than we maybe thought it was. It's actually not that hard. It happens all... And this is in living species, so it may probably happen a lot of times throughout evolution in the last... Yeah, yeah, sure. million years. It could be hundreds, hundreds of species. And a lot of these, however, do just spend some of the time um, out of the water, although some spend most of their time, or even when they do, they... Like some of the the species may, like, live in tidal pools, you know, Um, or they sort of skip along... Uh, like mud skippers, you know. Muddy mud uh, skipper? Mud skippers mm-hmm. are one type of fish that comes out of water. So they also said that it's probably pretty easy for fish to adapt to being out of water some of the time. But then the real trick yeah, is, is adapting to being uh, completely dry because their gills need to be moist to work. So that probably requires like the lung fish adaptation, right? You know, you need some kind of lung adaptation before you could really stay out of water for a long time. But what this means is that, you know, there's probably have been many, many opportunities in evolution for fish to evolve permanently to terrestrial vertebrates because they that first step is easy. And so that's a lot of opportunities for later, yes. more, more elaborate steps to occur. And that we see that, that that's true a lot in evolution. We find that the things that evolve a lot are actually easy to evolve. It's, and it's not circular logic. I mean, we like find genetically or physiologically, whatever, why it's easy. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, this is the kind of thing. There's one little genetic mutation. We'll make this happen over and over and over again. You know, evolution just statistically, you know, picks the low-hanging fruit. The things that are likely to happen happen a lot. And so it, mm-hmm. it makes sense. And, you know, it kind of that's what we find no matter which way we look at it. All right, let's move on to number two. A new study finds that older subjects are better able to process visually complex images, suggesting that our brains learn to improve such processing over time. Can I first say that there's a lot of ageism in the in the panel this week? Of- <laughs> oh no, <Uh-oh>. Bob. <laughs> 
Have you gotten your AARP card yet? No comment. <laughs> <laughs> so this one. I, I refused it on the uh, ground. I look too good. Is. Oh, no. The fiction. You guys yes. got it, right? <laughs> uh, so. Thank you. But this is based on a cool study uh, it, that did, in fact, show the opposite. That as people get older, their ability to process visual, certain kinds of visual information actually gets slower. Like what? So, okay, this is very interesting. So what the researchers were looking at is a basic neurological function called inhibition, which I'm sure I've mentioned on the show before. The brain largely works by uh, when you activate one part of the brain, it inhibits other parts of the brain. And our perception works that way as well. So we've talked a lot about perceptual processing on the show, the fact that your your brain constructs an image of what you're seeing. It's not passive. So one of the things that our brain does is it looks at all the possible ways to construct an image, and then it picks the one that's strongest, and it inhibits the other ones. Does that make what? sense? Whoa. So I'm going to give you an example from an optical illusion. Are you guys familiar with the face wine glass illusion? Yeah, of course. Yeah. We have two faces looking at each other, or is it a wine glass in the middle? It depends on whether you're looking at the one color or the other color, or the white or the black. You know, are you looking it's at like a foreground, background, foreground, shifting. background? So if you can, the illusion is they're constructing an image where it's it's kind of even. You know, so yep. your brain kind of shifts back and forth between inhibiting one construction or the other. But that's also why your brain flips. You don't see both at the same time. Really, you see one or the other because your brain right. will either it'll choose one as dominant and it will it will suppress the other one so first your brain sort of looks at all the edges between stuff and then it decides what's foreground what's background what's the image and what's the background and then it suppresses you know the ones that it doesn't think are real and it, and it enhances the one it does think is real but when you give this optical illusion to people so what this is what the researchers did is they gave these white on black images some of the images and they said they told the 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 subjects to uh, look at the white image to try to figure out whether or not the image was something real or something not real. So either it was a random shape or it was a thing. Did I explain that correctly? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So like, for example, you might have a white apple on a black background or you might just have a white blob on a black background. And the subjects had to decide, is the white part a thing or not a thing? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But here's the thing. Here's the trick. Some of the images in which the white part was not a thing, the black part was a thing. So in other words, it was like the black part was was a contour that suggested an image. Um, so in order to really see what the image of the white thing is, you had to suppress this suggested image of the black thing. Of the hmm. black background. Interesting. So Which is harder to do. You had to inhibit. So it was easy when there was nothing to inhibit, right? It was just the white image and there was nothing suggested by the black border. But it was harder. You had to take a moment to suppress the, the suggested black image in order to see whether or not the white image was there or not. Um, so older people had a harder time doing that. It took them longer. And, and this was predicted by the researchers because they said that it's been established by other research that – as we get older, one of the, we lose our ability to inhibit, you know, certain brain functions. So they, they actually 
I'm not sure how true this is, but it was very interesting. What the researcher said was, this is why older people tell long rambling stories because, (laughs) (laughs) which is kind of funny because they, they can't inhibit their thoughts. You know, they get distracted by all, you know, like when you're telling a story, other things come up in your mind. You're making associations in your mind all the time, but you inhibit them to keep focused on the story. Right. But they have a harder time inhibiting these other side thoughts. So they go off on these tangents. And I've noticed that in myself when I'm like, if you sometimes you're more calm, other times you might be more manic or Mm -hmm. you might be tired or fatigued. Um, and you know, you, so at times you may have more of a little bit flightiness, you know, like in terms of your, you're leaping from one topic to another, whereas other times you're much more disciplined and controlled. Have you guys, you know what I'm talking about? Sure. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so we all have a range, you know, from depending on whatever our our overall function. I'm sure I've never been drunk, but probably when you get drunk, it's the same thing. Interesting. And combine that with like memory deficits and you've got to yeah. Terrible storyteller. <laughs> what was I talking about again? I have friends like that, though, that are not old. Yeah, right. <laughs> so. All right, let's move on to number three. A new analysis of Pluto from the New Horizons images supports the conclusion that Pluto contains subsurface liquid water today. And that one, of course, is science. I figured that you guys might have seen this one. This has been all over the news, but I had we had to talk about it. It was too cool. So. The researchers basically um, computer modeled uh, what would happen if Pluto had a liquid ocean at one time, which it almost certainly did. And then if the liquid ocean completely solidified, turned to ice, then Pluto should have shrunk. Mm -hmm. And if Pluto shrank any time in its past – we would the have surface seen would be different. The, the, there would be geological surface features that would represent that shrinking and New Horizons didn't see those features. So there's no evidence from studying the surface of Pluto that it has shrank over the years. Therefore, if it did have a liquid ocean, it probably still has one and it has not completely solidified. So that's the the reasoning that they use to conclude that Pluto might have, which is why I said it supports the conclusion. It doesn't really prove it, but it, it mm. bolsters the case, as they say, that there may be subsurface liquid water on Pluto, which is cool. And it is surprising for such a small, distant world, right? Yeah. It, yeah, it really is. There might be Plutons. Plutons? Life true, living actually. in any liquid water. There could be life down there. Who knows? I hope they're like water bears. Water bears. <laughs> they're I awesome. Water bears. That like would tar- change the world, wouldn't it? Tardigrades. Oh, yeah. Water dogs. Yep. The water dogs. Yeah, exactly. They'll be slightly different. Dogs named Pluto. All right. Good job, guys. Thank you. Yay. Wow, guys. See how he didn't say good job, Jay? He said good job, guys. I always give everybody credit. Mm-hmm. I know, I know you're. It had nothing to do with you're you, desperate for approval, Jay. I know. I understand. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm just trying to show you that last week I would have probably done an excellent job as well. Yeah, last week was hard. Sure it was. It was. Okay. Yeah. I have a quote this week. Quote me. All right. You tell me who the quote's from. And I'll read the quote, and you see if you have any guesses. When even the brightest mind in our world has been trained up from childhood in a superstition of any kind. It will never be possible for that mind in its maturity to examine sincerely, dispassionately, and conscientiously any evidence or any circumstance which shall seem to cast a doubt upon the, the validity of that superstition. I doubt if I could do it myself. Richard Dawkins. Nope. Saul Rosenberg. That was 
none no, no. other than Mark Twain. Oh my no, God! No of course, the yeah. quote generator. That's amazing. I love it. I've never yeah. heard that quote by I, him. I before. don't know if yeah. I don't know if I agree with it. I I see where he's coming from. He's being a little cynical, which of course is his thing. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, he's basically saying that you know if you get inculcated with a superstition, it is damn hard to shake it. You know? True. Which I, I agree with that. I wouldn't say it's impossible. Yeah. Because I, but maybe it was back then or yeah. harder. Even then. I, still, I think people can, can dig themselves out of that hole. It's hard, though. It's damn hard. It's, yeah. I'll give him that. Absolutely. But yeah, Mark Twain, very skeptical dude. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. You got it. Sure, Steve. Thanks, Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.